freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. everybody welcome to episode number 325 of gun freedom radio where we engage we educate and we inform we are brought to you by azfirearmsauctions.com where you set the price on guns ammo and accessories i am one of your hosts cheryl todd and i'm the other guy dan todd our theme today is a faster way to save lives and our guest today is Joe Eaton. Joe is a program director for Faster Saves Lives, a nonprofit based in Ohio that has given firearms training to thousands of teachers since 2012. Absolutely. Welcome to the show, Joe. Oh, I'm so happy to be here with both of you today. Well, I am over the moon because I just was treated and blessed and honored to have spent an entire week in Ohio with you and all of your trainers and benefited from that firsthand experience of what you mean by faster saves lives. And it, it was the most life-changing training I've ever taken. And I just appreciate it so much. And I want you to tell folks, you know, give us an idea uh, for those that have never heard of it before. I mean, the name makes perfect sense. Faster saves lives, the faster you get somebody help, the, the more lives you're gonna save. But what is this program? What did, where did it come from? What have you accomplished with it? Sure. Well, the, the Faster Saves Lives program, and FASTER is actually an acronym itself, because we all love acronyms. And it stands for Faculty and Administrator Safety Training and Emergency Response. So after the murders at the Sandy Hook Elementary School, we were approached by schools in Ohio and really across the country about what they can do to have armed staff to help prevent or or lessen the tragedies should violence come to their schools. So the FASTER program came about partnership between John Benner down at the Tactical Defense Institute. Uh, we worked with uh, the Wright State School of Tactical Medicine, uh, Dr. Dick Castor and his former work with the National Association of School Resource Officers. And we plan to do one class for 24 staff in the spring of 2013 because winters here in Ohio uh, can be a little bit brutal. So we knew holding it in December, January, or February wouldn't work. Uh, what we ended up with is by the time we could put the first class on, we had a waiting list that was well over 2000 staff from wow. across the United States. And while our nonprofit you know, thought that we would, would jumpstart this and do it as a proof of concept, we quickly realized there was no way that we could think we had done a good job by training 24 out of 2000 staff. So we regrouped, I went back to the foundation. I said, we've got to find some more ways to raise some money for this. And I think we actually had two more classes in 2013 and we've held them every year since then. We just finished our ninth year here in Ohio. Uh, we've done classes, uh, Colorado, 
We've done classes in Indiana, we've done classes in Utah, but the majority has been here in Ohio. And the demand keeps increasing year after year because unfortunately people are still committing violence against our kids. And that's something we have to prepare for. Absolutely. And so uh, for the, the reason that I came is because myself and two other uh, gentlemen who are on the board of directors of the Arizona Citizens Defense League Foundation, uh, David Laird and Mark Zelinskas, the three of us came out with the intention of having that, that firsthand um, experience, meeting with the trainers, getting a full understanding of what is involved with this training because we want to bring it to Arizona. It is our mission to save the lives of our children here in the state of Arizona by bringing this training here in partnership with you folks there in, in Ohio. And it's just an incredible opportunity. Well, we were very glad to host you both out here. And I believe we had Mr. Cop out here last year or the year before also, because mm -hmm. that's one of the things that we fight. A lot of the schools are involved in the program. They really can't be public about the training they're taking or how much they're involved in it. Uh, a good friend, Rob Morse from down in Louisiana said, you guys have one of the most fantastic programs that no one can talk about. <laughs> that's true. And you know, it, it's true. And one of the problems is, especially in the media, they want to focus on the firearms side of it. And that's such a small part of what we provide to the schools. And I think you can attest that it is not your typical continuing education class that school staff may be familiar with. And truly, it is not just a firearms class. It's too easy for people to think the training that we're providing is somebody sitting at their kitchen table doing a regular concealed carry class, teaching them how to put shots on a pie plate. But, you know, it has to go much further than that. Firearms have to be a part of the solution because anytime you're confronted with a deadly force situation, you cannot rely on less than lethal tools to solve that problem. And the one thing that we learned very early on from the experts is there are two ways that you save lives when these situations start. And unfortunately, the killers are always going to get the first, uh, the first kill. First thing is, is you stop the killing as soon as possible. And that's something we can rely on our staff because every time one of these events happens, there's always at least one staff member in that school building who runs toward the sound of gunfire and they give up the last seconds of their life to buy these kids a few more seconds of life. And those are the people the schools are finding, they're talking to and finding out what are they comfortable with. Mm -hmm. The second thing that's very important is you've got to be able to stop the dying after you've stopped the killing. And that's by having the proper tools and trauma medical training in the schools and more staff trained in that. So while you're waiting for the professionals to arrive, you've already stopped the killing and you can start saving lives. That way, when the police and the EMS show up, you actually have patients you can transfer to them instead of victims. And that's what we're all about, compressing that timeline down to get the victims the help they need as soon as possible to buy on that extra five, 10, 15 minutes, however long it takes to get the professionals in the building and that's the way that we save lives. And that's what schools are looking to do in more and more numbers all across the country. Right. The average public person doesn't know that the, the, the emergency crew can't go in until it stopped. The, the violent has stopped, right? That's generally the case. A lot of the EMSs are slowly changing where they are partnering with their tactical teams and going in. But still, if you look simply at the timeline of Sandy Hook Elementary School, if a school is waiting on outside help, it will never get any better than what we saw at Sandy Hook. Sandy Hook 
the by the first 911 call went out nobody's sure exactly how long afterwards after the killing started but the dispatcher only took 27 seconds to turn around and dispatch police from the time the 911 call went in the first police officer was sitting in the parking lot of Sandy Hook Elementary School in less than 3 minutes and they had three officers in total there within three minutes and 15 seconds. You ask any police department and that is a phenomenal response time, but yet we still lost 20 babies that day because their only plan was to rely on outside help to stop the killing. And then even worse, the medical crews were staged down the road and there was no one in there that could stop the people from dying and bleeding out from their injuries. And that's what we've got to change. We've got to provide the staff inside the schools because they are there when the events happen. They are the first ones responding, no matter what anybody else wants to say. And they are the ones who will save lives. Absolutely. And what do you say to the people who they get this mental hang up, this mental uh, wall that they can't get past that somehow the Faster Saves Lives organization or people that believe in it, like myself, are forcing teachers to carry guns in school. Talk to you know, that. You know, truly, it's just human nature. Anybody you talk to, as soon as you mention putting guns in school, the one staff member you would never want to be a part of this program is the first one that pops to mind. We all had teachers that we knew were right on the edge growing up. But I tell the superintendents and the school boards, just stop and think for a second. I can say with 100% certainty, every school building in these United States, there is at least one staff member, who, no matter what their policy says, who, no matter what jeopardy it puts themselves or their job in, are going to go stand between a murderer with a rifle and the kids that they love and are dedicated to protecting. Those are the ones that you go to. And some of them, they want to do nothing else. They're happy with the way it is. Other ones, really like the trauma medical training. And so the more people that we have trained in the trauma medical care, because not only for violent situations, but severe weather, sports emergencies, kitchen, bus, lab accidents. We've already had two lives saved from the training that we've provided to schools. And actually it was somebody who was in a class opposite the one that you took, just reported back from their trip to the Badlands. Uh, his wife fell actually required 13 stitches in her hand and broke one of the bones in her upper arm. Uh, he said, we did have our trauma medical kit there with us. Fortunately, it wasn't life-threatening, but this is the type of people that we're looking for. And some of them say, I wanna do everything that I can to save these lives. I wanna have the firearms training. I wanna have the crisis and emergency management training. So I know how to move people from an area of danger to an area of safety, or I know how to set up an ambush to protect the kids that I'm responsible for. I want the trauma medical training. I want everything that I can possibly get so that these teachers have a chance of going home to their families at the end of the night. And as a school and a community and a nation, they're willing to die for our kids. We should do everything we can to give them a chance to, to live for our kids also. Right. Wow, that's exactly it. And you know, the, the medical part of it, that it's another like roadblock that people have in their minds. They're like, you know, teachers can't be doing surgery and, and making sutures. And it's like, no, we're not talking about that. We're talking about, and, and the faster saves lives program. They, I mean, fully put their money where their mouth is I was sent home with this kit right here. It has a tourniquet. That is the most basic stopping the bleed because if you hit an artery, I, and you know this more than I do, 
if you hit an artery, whether it's in a shop class or, you know, as you said, since things can happen in cooking classes, so you can have a, an accident, a car accident in the parking lot, or as people are pulling into school, a whole person can bleed out in three minutes. I mean, that is it's, no time at all. It's very simple training that we can get out there to our staff. You know, we have AEDs in every school, the defibrillator machines in Ohio, all of the staff are trained in CPR. But, you know, the thing that is most likely to kill a person is not a heart attack. It is a traumatic injury, which causes loss of uh, rapid loss of blood. And after two decades of war fighting, we have found that a lot of your listeners probably remember, as I did as a Boy Scout growing up, tourniquets are the last line of defense is what we were taught. Well, that's simply not true anymore. We used to think a lot of things, Pluto was a planet or now it's not a planet, or I don't know if they decided today. But the one thing we know is that anytime you have significant bleeding from an extremity, a tourniquet is the first line of defense that you can put on and immediately stop that bleeding. And that's how you save lives. Tourniquets are used every day in operating rooms across the United States, and they are the easiest and the quickest way to stop the rapid loss of blood and save lives. We go beyond that to also show them how to effectively treat junctional wounds because those are the second most easily fixed type of wounds that you can use to buy some as well as penetrating trauma to the chest, the sides or the back to prevent you know, a collapsed lung and the tension pneumothorax that comes from that. But again, these are simply things that they can quickly apply to the victims and buy them that five minutes, that 10 minutes. And instead of somebody bleeding out in three or four minutes from a severed artery, you put the tourniquet on within a minute or two, and then you get them out to the professionals that can get them the treatment that they need. And that's a huge part of it. And that's why the trauma kits are, are so important. And, you know, we provide these to every one of the staff that comes through this, and we provide the training and the equipment to schools outside of the program also, because too many times I get a call from a school, well, what should I put in my trauma kits? And truthfully, if they're asking that question, I tell them training is the first thing. If you get the training, you'll know what you need to put in your trauma kits. And that's the way that you've got to look at it. And, you know, we're so thankful that you've got this and taking it back now and have it accessible to you. Because again, you know, we all live in, in a world where accidents can happen. And just having the, the mental clarity to think through this ahead of time and be prepared puts you a step ahead of a lot of people out there. Thanks, Cheryl. Absolutely. Well, I, I am a little clumsy, my own self, and I uh, found many uh, sharp edges and, and instruments in my, <laughs> in my world accidentally. So I have an extra appreciation for uh, the tools that are in this kit and now the training that I've gotten um, on a very, very serious note, there is this horrible recording of a 911 call. Um, it, I, and I, I am familiar with it because of the, the organization you work with, Faster Saves Lives. Uh, Jim Irvine is one of your directors. He had uh, sent it to, to me and, and the gentlemen that were coming with me for training. And something happened to a little boy on a playground, I believe. It was like some sharp piece of, of playground equipment. Actually, it was the, the Townsville Elementary uh, school shooting and uh, the young man was was Jacob Hall. And the 911 calls are out there and they're, they're simply horrific to listen to when you realize that you're listening to a six-year-old boy die in the background. And 
the school staff, they're, they're doing everything that they know of to do. You can hear them at one point saying he's turning blue, we're using the AED on him, or we're doing CPR, not knowing that he had a bullet wound to the lower leg, which is, as you now know from the training, one of the most easily treatable wounds that, that you can have in these type of violent situations. And unfortunately, time and time again, and it breaks my heart to listen to the 911 operators, the only help they can give them is they're coming as fast as they can. They're coming as fast as they can. And you know, one of those teachers with the simple training that we gave you in the program, they could have saved young Jacob Hall's life. And, you know, he would have grown up with probably a gnarly scar and an unbelievable story to tell for the rest of his life. But simply the fact that we didn't think far enough ahead to train our school staff in the thing most likely to cause a loss of life in our kids cost him his life that day. And that's something we can't stand for anymore. Absolutely. I, I feel like it is unconscionable actually that every single teacher, every single classroom in the United States doesn't have something this simple and this basic at their disposal. And, and the couple of hours of training that this portion of it uh, would take. I, I can't imagine a teacher out there that would not. I mean, we all want to protect what we love. Teachers love themselves, right? At the minimum. Um, and you can put a tourniquet on yourself. Uh, and they definitely love their students. They love their coworkers. If we just led with this and said, this is what right. Faster is about. And then people are like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. And then it's like, oh, and by the way, here's all of this other physical training armed and unarmed, I, I just feel like it's so, so many of those walls would come down in people's minds. Well, you missed, or, or maybe you didn't, but in the, cause you got a shortened version. You came to both the level one and the level two class, both back to back. Uh, there was a school superintendent in the level two class that I was talking with. And he said, now in his district, every senior in their district is required to be trained in tourniquet application before they can graduate from his district. And I think that's just awesome. Teach them them skills. They'd already been providing them CPR, which we have proven for decades is a very valuable skill to have. The next thing we need to do is add this additional level of training. And, you know, the world is full of first responders because those are those are the people who are there when the tragedies happen. And those are the ones that we need trained and ready to respond. Absolutely. Um, so you yourself, how did, this is a almost a decade long program. You yourself, were you at the beginning of it? Did you come in later? Like, how did you become involved in this? Uh, I've been involved with the Buckeye Firearms Foundation, which is the 501c3, which funds the Faster Saves Lives program. Uh, we started off mainly doing youth firearm safety, youth shoots. We branched out into uh, suicide prevention uh, education for gun owners. We've worked with the American Academy of Pediatrics here in Ohio on some safe storage and teaching pediatric doctors how they can have that conversation with their gun owning families instead of stigmatizing the families of you know, embarrassing them because they're gun owners. The doctors that we work with here in Ohio now approach it the other way. They know 50% of their families have firearms. So let's have that conversation from a different angle now. And then we started the Faster Saves Lives program. And, you know, the Verbine and a couple other volunteers took care of putting on the first class. Uh, but once I got there and met the staff and heard their stories and felt the love and the dedication that these these people, it, as you said earlier, it changes your life. Outside of raising my kids, it's one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done because 
these school staff truly have a love for, and it's not their kids, it's our kids, it's our grandkids, and it is really phenomenal to work with somebody that that's dedicated. So I started working with the program then. Uh, our foundation is an all-volunteer group, so we find people that have a passion for whatever program we're offering. Uh, the Faster Saves Lives matched exactly with what I felt that I should be doing at that point in time, and I've uh, tried to head it up and run it since then. And We'll continue as long as they are out there killing our kids. We're going to give schools an option to stop that from happening. Mm. Well, Joe, what, you know, I think the schools are obligated to protect our children. The teachers are obligated to protect our children. What do you say to the schools that are against this program? You know, they, they really need to provide me with another option. They need to provide their parents with an explanation of why waiting three, even three minutes and 16 seconds for the first police officer to get there, as we saw in Sandy Hook, why that's acceptable to them to say 20 dead kids is okay. We're fine with that. We don't ever want to get any better with that. And that's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I've explained it time and time again, if a school or a parent or somebody sees a kid fall in a swimming pool, we don't simply dial 911 and stand there and wait for the professionals to show up. We jump in the pool, we pull the kid out, and we start saving lives immediately. And we've got to do that with everything that could possibly take our kids' lives. And, you know, truthfully, they have an argument because very honestly, the odds of this happening in their school are so small that they could almost be forgiven for overlooking it. But then you've got to look at the flip side of that, the devastation that comes from this type of violence in your schools, to your communities, to every person in that entire city. And that's where the school boards have to balance that out. That's their decision to make. Where am I going to put my school on this? And they need to provide answers to the parents. If theirs is, we're going to do nothing, tell us what, why that's the right choice. I don't think it's a school's decision to make. I think it's a parent's decision to make. They need to go to the school boards and say, my kid will be protected. That chance, that chance right there is enough to say. And plus, you know, they can use that uh, training for other life situations too, not just at the school, but those teachers are now able to help people all over their state, yeah. you know, when and, they go on vacation or whatever. And I'll give credit to a lot of the schools out there. I thought like you did when we first started this and we just finished our ninth year that it was going to have to be a grassroots bottom up type of thing from the parents and the teachers demanding the schools do that. Truthfully, over the years, we've seen more of it come from the top down, from school boards talking to other school boards, from them seeking out more information. The educational community likes to keep learning. They may not like to keep changing even after they've learned something, but a lot of these discussions happen. And uh, really, we've seen a lot of this push from the top down. There's been very few that have had to start at the bottom up. But sometimes it's simply a conversation. Uh, I tell a lot of school staff out there, do a search online. We had CBS Nightly News in. We had PBS Education Weekend. They've done uh, full segments on the program. Simply ask your school board, hey, what about this thing I saw on CBS National News about this group out in Ohio that's trained school staff from 250 schools across 18 states? You know, have we looked at this? Have we considered this? You know, what are we doing? What have we changed in the past decade? Police response has changed. Some schools are changing, but they need to at least ask the questions. What are we doing every time one of these events happens? Are we making our schools safer for our children? And if not, we've got to stop doing that and start doing something else. I look at that. 
I look at it. Thanks for the response. But I look at that 911 call where that person was sitting over that six-year-old boy. Yeah. That was, he is in that group. He was in that group, right? If he would have had training, then he could have saved that boy. And now for the rest of his life, he's going to think, why didn't I get training? Why didn't I do something? It's multiple people it, in the car. Right. You can hear so, a couple of women, I mean, a man, I believe. And they're desperate. They're like, we're trying so hard to save this kid's life. And they just don't know what they don't know. And we've all been taught, call 911. They will provide you all the information. You know, that's just not the way the world works, especially with these type of injuries and this devastating type of blood loss. You have to have somebody there immediately trained. You have to have the tools there and they have to have the confidence and ability to, to solve the problem. And that's another part of the Faster Save Lives program, which you experienced is the, uh, the decision-making scenarios that we run them all through. And, you know, it's really neat to me because even, you know, our classes are a three-day long class, actually three and a half days because we provide the medical either over the lunch and dinner hours as we, we did with you or have them come back in the evenings. But even by the time we get to the third day, you'll see a lot of staff that still are just not sure. Is, is this something I can do? Am I going to, is this going to work? Am I going to make it better? Heaven forbid, am I going to make this worse? And then you get them in these decision-making scenarios and you start seeing them using the tools and the training we've provided them. And you get to a point where you can see it click inside of the school staff's mind. And I think that's very empowering because now they know even the simple bit of training we can provide them in three days is allowing them to solve these problems, to save lives and make the situation better. And that empowers them to go the next step further. What can I do when I get home? How much training can I add on? What else can I do? And they've started down as, as Jim and Mr. Benner said, you know, it is a whole new lifestyle for them because at least half of the school staff we're getting coming out to our program now had never touched a firearm until they volunteered to be a part of their school program. And that speaks very highly of the staff that are coming out, willing to step that far outside of their comfort zone to keep our kids safe. Right. And I don't, you know, I didn't get to take the class yet. I'm going to wait when it comes to Arizona, but I feel more comfortable that my daughter, I mean, my wife took the class because now, I mean, we were at a, an event last night with 15 people and there was fireworks around. You don't know if there's going to be a an emergency situation, she's qualified to at least assist. At least put a tourniquet right. on you. And and it's sort of like yes. when we we go somewhere, my daughter carries a gun, she carries a gun, I carry a gun, and I don't have to be the one to protect. It's all of us. We're mm -hmm. all together. Mm -hmm. And so it's important that they they take these classes for that. So mm -hmm. I'm thankful for the program. Mm -hmm. You've got to plan on it yourself. We had our fireworks display here in my hometown and while they were getting ready, they weren't even blocking off streets or anything. And you know, I asked one of the police officers there, do we have any tourniquets staged around? I said, yeah, I've got a medical kit in my car. Well, you know, his car was at the other end of the block. And you know, again, and probably exactly right. Yeah, I did not think to ask him if it was even unlocked in case he was the one that needed the care. Right. But that's slowly changing as something, again, we can have these conversations. And as we we learn more and spread this out because these are these are skills that anyone can have. If we're teaching it to our high school kids, you know, we can teach this to anyone out there and not only for their own lives, but the lives of the loved ones that, that we are out there with all the time. If you're carrying a firearm capable of putting holes in people, uh, you can only assume that there's a good chance you may have holes put in yourself also and you need to be prepared for that.
right. That's so true. And a phrase that I kept hearing over and over during the week I was out in Ohio is the body will not go where the mind hasn't been. And I experienced that over and over and over again um, as the week progressed. And I took training in something that I had never done before, or maybe I'd done before, but this was a next level thing. And so there was one specific moment where uh, it was in one of the live scenarios where we were, you know, engaging, okay, we've got, you know, people simulating, you know, dead people and then injured people. And then here's the bad guy. And I did something that I, I would have never known I could do, but I had just done it the day before successfully out on the firing range. And so I was able to, to tap into what I had just done. My, my body had just done it. So my mind was prepared in that moment to, to do the, the maneuver that I did uh, in this scenario. And I didn't even, I didn't even think about it. You know, I didn't even go, well, how would I engage in this situation? I had just done it. I knew I had confidence. I did it. And it was the right thing. It, it was incredible. And that's all part of empowering the staff. The staff want to be able to make a difference. We just need to provide them the tools and the training and the confidence that they are going to make a difference when they make these decisions. Absolutely. It's, it's incredible. I, I just kind of defy anybody that, that wants to stand on what principle on legalities on, on liability, any, any one of those can be instantly negated by the reality of the world that we sadly live in. And we are coming out of, we're sitting in the studio on Monday, July 5th, 2021. We're at the very, very, very tail end, I hope, of all the COVID craziness and the lockdowns, the isolation, the across the, the world, not just even our nation, the frustration, the loss of jobs and businesses. We, we have more suicide ideation and attempts um, right now than I think we've ever had. We are in a very, very dangerous crucible right now um, and an opportunity for people on the edge to act out. And, and many of the professionals are saying just that, the, the isolation, the, the time spent alone, because we know a lot of these perpetrators of these, these crimes spent a lot of time planning this. Uh, unfortunately, our school children and others have had nothing but time over the past year, and we're looking to bring them back together after, you know, what is surely an increase in cyberbullying and isolation that's just not good for the human for, for the human psyche. So schools have got to be prepared for this. We know it's going to start up again, and we have to make sure that they're prepared for it in every way possible. And that's what we're going to continue providing to, to schools. We provide this to churches. We provide it to the general public. Anyone who wants this life-saving training, we can make it available to them. Well, and, and I say, if you're even halfway open to it, just do it. Just get the training. Talk to um, your whoever it is you need to talk to. You don't need anybody's permission to have a medical kit and get some medical training, right. right? And so, you know, start there and then talk to your school administrator, talk to your school board, talk to fellow parents, um, whatever it is, start the conversation. I'm, I'm encouraging everyone listening and viewing us right now, be the conversation starter 
that starts moving the ball on this because you cannot, you cannot regret it. I, I would rather um, have the training, have the preparedness and never need it than be one of the people that's standing over poor little Jacob Hall's body as, and, and just helpless and helplessly watching his life leave him when something as simple as a tourniquet would have made all the difference and he would have still been with us. Right. Look how many schools have fire extinguishers that have never, ever used them. Right. But they're there when you need it. Exactly. It's because this, we take fire safety seriously in the United States. It was just up until a year ago, I worked for a facility maintenance company in my job, which actually feeds the family. Um, so I can volunteer for the faster program, but they brought, we, they brought us a, a PM schedule for the schools. They had 11 fire drills scheduled for the year and they had one evacuation drill scheduled. And the technician said to me, which are we taking more seriously? And, you know, you can't argue with that. Now it is getting better. I think now they are requiring them quarterly here in Ohio. But again, we have to look at this and demand answers from our schools on what it is exactly they're doing, not just checking boxes and saying, okay, I've met the requirements, but, you know, looking for the next level and the, the best experts out there. And that's what we have done by contacting these experts across the country, bringing them together and developing the program firstly, and then continuing to improve it, improve it by working with schools year after year after year. Well, your program itself is an example of having a prepared and a preparedness mindset when, and you mentioned Dr. Dick Castor and, and John Benner of TDI, when they wrote this curriculum, when they put this program down on paper, they both told me while I was out there that they thought there was no way they were ever going to get to use this, um, this training in schools. But yet they wrote it with that seriousness and they had it stuck on a shelf. And so then when Sandy Hook happened and people started calling you left and right and center, please help us. Is there some kind of training out there? They were like, as a matter of fact, we were ahead of the curve. And that's, that's right. what you this know, training is. Get ahead of the curve, right? Mr. Benner found out he was contracted with the National Association of School Resource Officers back in the early 2000s and provided this type of training to thousands of school resource officers across the United States. And he openly admits very quickly, we realized that having one school resource officer, even standing at the front door of the school was not enough because by the time they can get in the schools, knowing they're responding to a, a training scenario, find the problem, eliminate the problem. He said, we had always lose an entire classroom. He said, no matter what we could do with the school resource officers, we could never get it below an entire classroom. And he said, that is not acceptable. We need more of them right in the schools that can immediately respond. But, you know, the political climate, unfortunately, nobody was really looking at it in any public way. We had several schools that have contacted us after we started the program that had already had something like this in place for years before this, working with their local sheriffs and others. But the Sandy Hook Elementary School and the age of the children there and the devastation that that brought to our country uh, really changed a lot of the dialogue to, it's not, you know, what should we be doing it's what can we be doing immediately because we cannot stand for another horrific event like this ever again well joe they think that the the solution the people that are uneducated think the solution is no guns you know get rid of the guns and so they're clouded by that when really 
the training is not just a, it's just a little bit about guns and most of it's about how to help somebody that's got a medical emergency could be from a shop tool could be thrown against a piece of glass that cut them in the neck it could be anything there are so many things that can happen at school that this program is good for so we need to quit thinking about just the firearms part of it but everything and and that's what's so hypocritical about a lot of the detractors that we hear out there. A call to 911 is a call begging somebody trained with firearms to get there and first stop the killing. That's only part of it. The second part is, is they've got to already have the medical crew there starting on, on the way there. So again, you've got that delay, which there's always going to be a delay if you're waiting on outside help. And we, we know that our school staff love and care about our kids. We know that they are capable of doing many other tasks besides simply presenting an algebra or how to solve an equation or how to properly diagram a sentence. We ask them to do so much now. If they're willing to do this and the schools can find a way to make this happen, we always hear, you know, well, let's just hire more SROs. And as you, I'm sure, talk to a lot of the staff, we have a lot of very rural, rural schools, which this yeah. is a top priority. We're very cash strapped. And beyond that, all we have to do is look at Parkland, what happened with the school resource officer there. And schools have looked at that and said, while we know nothing is going to be 100%, if the schools are picking the staff that are going to be armed, if they're defining the training they're going through, if they're setting the qualification level required for this staff, it doesn't solve every problem, but it takes a lot of variables out of the equation. They at least know who will be responding to them, what training that person has had, and what qualification level they've had. And that truly puts them light years beyond hoping that the right police officer shows up right. and taking that chance with the students' lives. You, well, you can't do that. You have to prepare ahead of time. 100% agreed. And the firearms training that we received in Ohio was serious. It was high level. I've been shooting my entire life and I didn't pass your qualification. And I think that right there was, that was valuable for me to know and experience because there was but no- But you did pass it to the police officer level in Ohio. And that's the interesting thing, right? So because your level is so much higher than even what we require from our police officers. And there was no, well, you know, her number is, you know, her score is close enough. Nope. It was, this is a pass or a fail. And I absolutely valued the fact that uh, I, and, and I wasn't the only one that it was like, they might've done great. And I think I did fine on a, a lot of the other things, the medical things and the life scenarios, but you are taking so seriously the program faster saves lives. Andrew Bluebaugh at apex training, uh, which is the level one that I took. And then all the great folks at TDI under John Benner um, was the level two. They take that firearms training so seriously. It has to be, but I respect the program even more from that personal experience of, of seeing that not everybody's like, ah, it's close enough. Pass them on through. No, and it, it can be devastating to a lot of the staff because they truly put their hearts and souls into this training and they want to do the best they can. And, you know, it's little consolation to them when I tell them, I'm actually glad that you failed because from a selfish standpoint, from the program level, that shows we're not just rubber stamping this. Thank and you. you mentioned we use the standard police officer training, which is required for every police officer here in the state of Ohio. 
but instead of allowing them to pass fail at an 80% level, we hold them to a 93% level. Instead of being able to miss five out of 25 shots that is on the standard qualification, we added three additional shots to it and we only allow two shots missed. So the staff that are already qualifying through the Faster Saves Live program have on that day demonstrated a proficiency far above what we require for the police officers in Ohio. And many schools are taking it even higher than that, requiring the FBI or other types of qualification levels to stay a part of their program. And that's what we love seeing the schools. They're taking this seriously, putting the oversight in and constantly improving and bettering the program so they can have the safest, most effective program that, that we could ever think of in their schools. Exactly. And uh, on one of the shots that I missed was it would have been a lethal shot, but it wasn't where I was instructed to shoot. And so even that, you know, you somebody could have said, well, you know, it still works. Nope. It is not part of the program and it was unacceptable. And you, you seek that excellent standard. And I think that is amazing. I have no doubt if when you go back and reshoot it again, you're going to shoot it perfectly because your skills were there. But we were at the end of three very long, very hot days, dehydration, stress. We test these staff under the worst conditions possible because you have to realize a lot of the staff are not shooters like us that spend a day on the range. You know, they are used to sitting in a climate controlled environment and spending three solid days out in the hot heat and the humidity uh, takes a lot out of them, and we still ask them to perform even at, at that diminished situation. And so uh, many of them step up and do it. They it do, and let me tell you, I am I am going to beat that target. So Joe, she's, she's already she's already been the training. She's already been in the range twice since that day, <laughs> since she got back. So well, she's good. serious about it. So yeah, you know, you you think about all these situations and like the officers that are at the front of the school a serious shooter is going to take them out first and then go into school. And a, a person like that would think, Oh, if there's training throughout the school, maybe this isn't the school I'm going to pick. Maybe and I'm going to go right. somewhere it, else. The resource officers realize this also. We had one come to a school board meeting. Uh, the program was already in place in the school and they were look, talking about the program in a public meeting. And he simply told the school board and the staff, if you guys did not have the armed program here, I would no longer serve as a school resource officer. He said, I will willingly die for my these kids. He said, but I won't die fruitlessly for the kids. Mm-hmm. If they can kill me to start with and then continue on and take more lives, he said, I'm not, that's not acceptable to me. The fact that you have other people here that will make my death not meaningless is the only reason I continue to operate as a school resource officer. And and that's powerful because that shows the type of relationships that these schools are building with their sheriffs and their police departments and their communities. And what more could you ask from the police in your town than this type of support for schools? One month, they'll go to the sheriff's range and shoot with them. The next month, the sheriffs will come into the schools and run scenarios or other types of training with them. And it truly is just embedding the entire community. Right. It so is, and saving those young lives so that they can be our future because our youth is our future, right? Um, Joe Eaton of Faster Saves Lives, thank you so much for, for all you do and for taking this time. Tell folks how they can support the program because this is a nonprofit and, you know, if nothing else, range time and ammo is expensive <laughs> and, uh, uh, and follow all that you do. 
That's right. The FASTER program is available at fastersaveslives.org. We are a 501c3 nonprofit charity. So any donations may be tax deductible. Uh, you can also attend any of our training. We are also doing monthly FASTER challenges for shooting tourniquet other skills. In fact, I think you will be seeing uh, Miss Cheryl here in a uh, very short time popping up in one of our challenges, but go to the fastersaveslives.org website. You can contact us. We'd love to have you out for our training. If you are outside of the K through 12 environment, we will ask you to pay for your training while you're there. That way we can focus our limited funds on the K through 12 schools and continue providing this uh, to schools at no charge to the schools. It's amazing. I cannot. Wait, wait. There's no charge to the schools for this program? Uh, we do. That's something we work very hard with. Initially, we provided it absolutely no charge. Now we have block grants available for schools, which basically they can send up to five people at no cost to them uh, to start into the program. That allows them to get this jump started. And it simply was because about the third year into the program, I had one school call me and say, I want 32 of my staff trained. And I said, that's over a third of my budget for the year. I can't provide that all to one district. So we still work with schools, out-of-state schools. Contact us. We'll get grants for you guys if you can get your staff here. We want to provide you with this training any way possible. But that's only through individuals out there helping us and making donations to the program to make this available to the schools. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. I cannot emphasize enough how important this training is uh, and, and how faster really does save lives. Joe Eaton, thank you so much. We really appreciate you. We'll see you in Arizona very soon. Yes, thanks, Joe. Take care. Right, bye bye. <laughs> bye bye. All right. Oh my gosh. Uh, uh, you know, there's too much here. We we needed four more hours to cover this. Yes, I wish I could. You can't. You can't theorize this stuff as much as I've tried to to tell you and and other. Yes, people, I can. Since I can. I've been home, what it was like to take that training and how much I've grown, uh, and how it changes how you think about your environment. It's, it's not the same until you've done it yourself. But the thing is that when I hear about the 911 call oh. where that person was sending over a six-year-old boy, and here's the deal, any training would have been better than no training. Yes. And that's why. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's, it's important. Right. And so if they would have had the medical, like right. what's in this kit, there's uh, compression. Oh, even gauze, if he didn't have that kit, chest seals, but he had the knowledge to use a kit, use he could have tore his shirt off. Exactly. So not only that, but what if the bad guy is has moved on and now right. there are more six-year-olds being right. injured? Who's stopping that? Right. Well, then that's where the, the physical armed and unarmed training comes in. And as, as much as you think you're going to rise to the occasion, you are not. You are going to fall to your level of training and preparedness. And that is just the way that it as is. As a teacher, to hear the story about this kid and for you not to just sit there and do nothing right. is, is a crime. Be the conversation starter. Start yeah. talking to your legislators. If Go to the school to, boards. You know, here in Arizona, we don't need permission from legislators, but school boards are important. Other parents are important. Administration is important. Let's start those conversations so that when we bring the training to Arizona, we have so many people. We have what, what Joe said, they were ready to prepare to, to train 24 and they had 2000 right. show up. I want that problem. That is a good problem right. to have. All right. And so you can reach out to fastersaveslives.org. 
ask them in your state, you know, maybe you're in Kansas, maybe you're in Tennessee. How do I get this training? If you're here in Arizona, you can also ask them at faster uh, saveslives.org, but you can also go to the azcdl.org, the Arizona Citizens Defense League. And you can find that org. on our website too. Let me make sure I'm saying that right. Yes, fastersaveslives.org. And you can do what? Go to our website. Absolutely. Find all that information. Absolutely. Uh, we have that guest tab, right? right? So you go to gunfreedomradio.com, you click the guest tab, and you uh, can look at all of the guests. Uh, there's a page there for all of them, including Joe Eaton. And on his page, you'll see a link for Faster Saves Lives. And if you've missed any portion of this show and you'd like to listen to it, yes, audio only, then you go to gunfreedomradio.com, click the On Demand tab, and binge listen to your heart's content. Darling. And if you want to watch the video version, you can go to YouTube or GunStreamer or the smartphone app called Ops Lens. Um, it's an incredible uh, source of knowledge that we've gathered with all of the subject matter experts that we've I, talked to over the years. I, I agree. I, I have to say one more thing. If you have kids in school, if you have grandkids in school, if you have friends that have kids in school, if you don't at least send a note to your school board mm -hmm. to tell them what are your teachers qualified to do in case of emergency with my child absolutely. or grandkids absolutely all right we've got to get out of here so until next go. time well we have another interview to do because we do our interviews on mondays usually mm -hmm. and this is a monday and we do three interviews so we still have one to go okay well right. let's do it then so until next time what are we going to do we're going to pray for this nation and for our schools Happy birthday our to our nation yesterday. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, yesterday, but really yesterday while we're recording. Yes. but when this airs, it was a great, be, great party, ago. wasn't it? <laughs> it was it's a great party. It was. It's uh, you know, celebrating independence after an entire year of lockdowns and mandates. That, that's a little interesting, but that's for another show. But uh, yes, pray for our nation. Pray for our schools. Pray for our leaders in our schools and in our uh, legislatures. And I'm sure there's some that maybe you don't like too much, but what do we do? About we double those? pray for those. Double pray for those, even the ones we don't like, especially the ones we don't like. All right, gang, be good to each other. Have a great week and God bless. Bye-bye.